0: Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
1: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
0: Hello and welcome to the Extra Environmentalist Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Moser-Katz, and this is Justin Richie over here.
2: I'm not even close to being as musical as you right now, Seth. Tell me about your day, Seth. What's been going on in the life of Seth Moser-Katz?
0: The life of Seth Moser-Katz has been a tumultuous roller coaster ride as normal but today has been one of those days where you just kind of question why you woke up so newly unemployed in the world living it up as only the unemployed can do not quite a day old on the unemployment world
2: well at least you've got something automatically in common now with a lot of americans being unemployed and now don't you draw unemployment checks
0: yes i certainly do all right i can be on the government dole thank god
2: yeah Life could be worse, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, I could live in Canada, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly, I know. It's just so tumultuous up here. I think this <laughs> guy was great today. I think that's what happened.
0: So uh, tell me about your life, Justin. I heard you've, you've had some pretty crazy times yourself.
2: Yeah, my laptop hard drive crashed, locked up randomly while I was listening to uh, an episode of the Diet Soap podcast. The hard drive failed, lost three months of data. I thought I had everything backed up, but as it turned out, when I was backing up on my external hard drive, my landlord decided to bake cookies and it caused the fuse in the house to blow cutting out power to the entire house and me not being home, I assumed the backup had completed. It didn't. So, oh well, that's how life is. But I went on to race in the largest longboat race in North America. My team did quite well. We won a championship. That's exciting. Also, uh, Stuart Brand came to UBC, so it was fortunate to be able to host him, and uh, it was a very uh, interesting event, and we'll have the audio from his talk uh, in a future episode, I believe. So, yeah. what do we have going on today at the Extra Environmentalist, Seth?
0: We have a interview with uh, world-famous author Conrad Schmidt, who you interviewed while I was away on traveling. Isn't that right?
2: That's correct. We are talking with Conrad Schmidt. Wouldn't say he's world-renowned yet, but after this interview, he definitely will be, because... He has a lot of interesting ideas on what it means to be ecologically sustainable, what it means to have an economy, and what it means to develop technology within that economy. We've got that, and we've got some audio clips uh, interspersed there on some of the videos he's produced. Uh, Conrad's an an author and a filmmaker, um, and he's done a lot of interesting things here in Vancouver, and so we're excited to interview him, and uh, that's, that's where we're
0: at. Sounds great. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. It's almost time to put in my winter crop on the porch garden that I have out there. Container garden is uh, getting ready for some lettuce and some onions and some garlic. Sounds
2: good. I'll let you get on that, and I guess in the meantime, we'll play that interview.
0: All right, so enjoy the interview, and we will talk to you on the flip side.
2: Today, uh, Conrad Schmidt is the director of the film Five Circus, author of Workers of the World Relax, and his most recent book, Alternatives to Growth, uh, Efficiency Shifting, is the one I've read most recently. You also founded the BC Work Less Party in 2004. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add to your bio? I think
3: that's about it.
2: Okay, cool. So let's start off by talking a bit about uh, the BC Work Less Party. Uh, why did you start it?
3: Well, it's, it's, it's quite simple in that if we are ever going to be ecological sustainable, we have to start thinking about ways that we can reduce our ecological footprint, and then it has to be ways that improve people's quality of life. The most uh, true and tested way of doing that is reducing the work week. The idea is instead of trying to uh, grow the economy... Uh, You take some of those gains, potential gains in growth, and you turn it into more leisure time, which is what's been happening ever well since the 70s in lots of parts of Europe, like uh, Norway and Netherlands. They're around a 33, 34-hour work week. Germany, Luxembourg, France, and many other countries. So it's us in North America that are really, really determined to work longer and harder, produce more consumer goods, and consume more consumer goods and the consequences, our ecological footprint, is about double that of a European.
2: Why is it that in North America we work so much?
3: There's different theories as to why, but for me, I think the real reason why Europeans would have a, a lower work week is pretty much ever since the 70s, after the reconstruction of Europe, after the Second World War, there's been very much a shortage of space, there's more of a reluctance to bulldozer, a thousand-year-old church, and the streets are kind of narrow, and so you have a lot more constraints as to growth, whereas we in North America, I mean, it's, a lot of it's just empty fields, and there's plenty of space to put a new Walmart, and there's plenty right. of space to put a new highway, and there's plenty of space for more sprawl, whereas they had more of a restriction in those things, so they were forced to look at solutions that didn't involve increased growth and one of those is of course reduce the work week it's work sharing so the idea is keep more people employed but everybody works a little less
2: right so what is the connection between ecological footprint and leisure time or hours in work week
3: what technology mostly does is it creates efficiencies and that those efficiencies are that we can produce so much more with less labor the consequence is either we have to consume more to get uh, to increase employment or we have to reduce the work week or add some type of other inefficiency back into the system. The connection is that those gains in efficiency, what do we do with them? If we translate those gains into more leisure time, we increase people's well-being and if we translate those gains into increased consumerism, which we've been doing in North America, we have this increase in our ecological footprint.
2: Right, so why do economists discourage lumping labor or of reducing the work week?
3: Depends which economist. It's mm-hmm. very, very divided. Remember, even in our own history, United States mm-hmm. and Canada, we were some of the first countries in the world to reduce the work week. And Europe only followed much, much later. And, and labor rights was a time that it was North America that were the world leaders. It was Roosevelt who decreased the work week from fifty hours to forty hours and Canada followed suit pretty quickly. It was only since the seventies that Europeans started working less. We were the world leaders. And there are many, many economists that have all talked about the essentials of reducing the work week. Very mainstream Keynes used to talk about the essential of reducing the work week.
2: So where where was the disconnection in the history of economics really for North America?
3: Ah uh, the disconnection. Yeah. I think the disconnection, again, comes from more just possibilities up till fairly recently. We've had the option of just turning those efficiencies into increased consumerism. We've been able to do it up until recently. The hard limits to growth have been uh, a little delayed in coming to North America or of all the space that we've got. Mm-hmm and resources. Now we're starting to realize that it's just not an option. All right. So the movement to reducing the work week is gaining a lot of steam in North America at the moment because people realize, oh, we have no choice. <laughs> right. Ecology is telling us that we can't continue matching efficiency gains into increased consumerism. Uh, we have to start doing something. And people go, so what do we do? We can't keep on growing. Infinite growth is just impossible. What do we do? Well, reduce the work week.
2: Right. So an an interesting point you made in your book was that it it wasn't World War II that ended the Great Depression. It was the philosophy of consumerism. How did that happen? And then the follow-up to that would be if we moved away from consumerism, would that automatically put us back in a depression economy?
3: That's a great question because the answer is absolutely yes. And that's the point that I've been trying to get at. If you simply say, well, we're going to reduce our ecological footprint by not consuming anymore, you again land up in a recession, a depression, and that creates a very hostile uh, climate of people who are losing jobs. It's hard on people. So you have to find a solution where you maintain high levels of a high standards of living. So there's two ways you do that. One is you reduce the work week, or the other way is you add some type of inefficiencies back into the system in the form of labor inefficiencies, which is very, very possible which I call efficiency shifting. Now, what is so interesting, and it's a question that comes up a lot is, well, if we reduce the work week, doesn't that mean that uh, we're going to make less money? And it's a very odd answer, because oddly enough, not necessarily. If you chart the countries that have a reduced work week versus the countries that have the longest hours of work, the countries with the longest hours of work, United States, Canada, we are also the nations with the biggest gap between rich and poor countries that have less hours of work are more egalitarian in nature their gap is reduced and the reason why the gap is reduced is that when people are working extremely hard always chasing after the next dollar and they don't have time to find out what the corporations are doing what politicians are doing and they're no longer holding those entities accountable Mm -hmm. then you have that rising inequality and people don't really they lose more because they're not paying attention to the bigger question. In countries where people have the time to find out what their politicians are doing, to hold corporations accountable, they're in a better position to insist on fair labor standards and fair wages. And that is why countries that have a reduced wage have less of that poverty problem. It's really, really interesting. Basically, the model is that if you think of only yourself and you chase after that $1 much as you want and you don't pay attention to what politicians or corporations do, you will lose. And that's why the real living standards and wages have not really increased since the 70s in North America. It's really interesting.
4: efficiency of of energy-using processes increases. You release money which would previously have been spent on energy. That money then wanders around looking for a home. And the home it finds is in energy-intensive industries because by improving energy efficiency, you have actually reduced the implicit price of energy. So it's cheaper to invest in in energy-intensive industries. A good example is the 1975 CAFE standard. During the 1970s, the price of oil rose to $80 a barrel. The United States Congress, in an attempt to reduce expenditure on oil, legislated the Energy Conservation Policy Act of 1975, which mandated an increase in the efficiency of automobiles. The logic was that more efficient vehicles would use less fuel. They were wrong. The reverse happened. The more efficient engines became, the more people traveled, and the more they bought cars. Even though engine efficiency increased by 34%, consumption increased by 9% by 1990. Technology that increases our efficiency is not necessarily green. In virtually every case, the more efficient a technology, the more consumption is increased. Coal was more efficient than wood. But because it was more efficient, it encouraged an increase in use. The discovery of coal resulted in the invention of the steam engine, which led to an increase in energy consumption. Gasoline was more efficient than coal, but also led to an increase in production and consumption. The phenomenon of how an increase in technological efficiency leads to an increase in consumption and not a decrease is known as the Jevons paradox. So what we're seeing here is the gains that we acquire through efficiency get fed back into the economy, either because we consume more of the item we've conserved, because the price is lower, or because we all, we indulge ourselves in some alternative form of consumption. The net effect is that consumption of energy and material continues to rise. What technology mostly does is it increases efficiency. Increased efficiency means that with the same amount of labor we can produce more goods and services the more we produce the more we need to consume the cycle of production and consumption with increasing motive for profit encourages new technological inventions the cycle goes on and on technology increases our ability to produce more goods and services if we continue to work just as hard we're eventually going to produce and consume ourselves out of a planet.
2: Yeah, so uh, one really interesting example from your your book on efficiency shifting was on the ecological sustainability of the SUV or the bike. So,
3: ah, yeah, yes. I like that example. Yeah,
2: so which is more ecologically sustainable, the SUV or the bike, and why do we have such a poor understanding of this
3: question? It was exactly what happened to me in my own personal life. I used to be a programmer, and I used to get into my car each morning. This was ah, oh, it must be eight years ago. And each morning, I used to head off to work. I used to work for a company, and they used to make automation software that ran about 70% of all the factories in the United States. It was factories that made cigarettes, cars, television sets, countless amount of consumer products. And I decided, you know what? I feel guilty. I want to reduce my ecological footprint. So what I did was I got rid of my car. I had this SUV, and I started cycling to work. It was great. I was getting fantastic exercise, and I was getting to work faster than other people because of all the traffic congestion. I mean, it's an efficient form of transportation. Right. And here's the catch. At the end of each month, I had an extra three, dollars $400 in my bank account. It was great. It was fantastic. But that got my mind thinking. You see, here's the problem. It's called the Jevons effect. If I went and I spent that money, if it was on a computer or a bigger home or a camera or a European vacation, or even a masseuse who then went and spent it on a car or something, all of those things would have increased my ecological footprint even potentially more than owning the car. You see, I couldn't reduce my ecological footprint by simply changing to a bike. I had to make a bigger change because that money is what represents the real ecological problem because once it enters into the economy, my ecological footprint would have been just as bad or worse. So what I did... Was I walked into my boss's office and I said, how about I don't show up here on a Friday and you don't pay me? And It was fantastic. I took that gain in money and I turned it into more leisure time. I reduced my work week. That's how I was able to reduce my ecological footprint and improve my quality of life because then I had time to get involved in community. I wrote Workers of the World Relaxed. I wrote a play. I made the film. I loved the idea so much I started the political party. And... So to get back to the part about how money enters the economy, what really is a representation of the size of our ecological footprint is the size of the industrial economy. It's me producing stuff. It's me consuming stuff. If I didn't produce my work week and I just spent that money, I'd be consuming more stuff and my ecological footprint would get bigger. I'd be feeding those efficiencies back into the economy and it would be worse off that's the exciting part about this whole equation is how you really deal with efficiencies in a system.
2: I feel like coming from another perspective, someone could say, well, what if you just save that money and put it into the bank? What would happen then?
3: The bank would lend it to somebody and a lot of the people that they lend to are uh, businesses, corporations, many of which of the f- portfolio would be tar sands, operations. Right. Uh, There'd be, uh, You see, it re-enters the economy. I have a friend who had told this example to him, they said, well, Conrad, that doesn't work because I take my extra money and I put it into an ethical fund. And I said, well, let's look what your, your ethical fund at City." And many of those firms were far from ethical. Once it enters in the economy, your ecological footprint will increase, even if it's through savings.
1: If right. you're
3: working and you're consuming, even if it's an investment portfolio, your ecological footprint is about the same. And if it's more efficient, it's even worse. So that's the real exciting mental challenge on this whole thing, is how to deal with the efficiencies that enter in the economy. And the simplest way is reduce the work week, because it's tried and tested. But there are other ways that it could all be done. It it is a little challenging, but it's fun thinking about it.
2: Right. So uh, other than working less, what other ways uh, can you deal with those efficiencies?
3: Well, if you add some type of inefficiency in the form of some type of labor inefficiency, which can be you do something, but it requires more labor than previously, such as having more teachers, more caregivers, organic farming, anything where the output requires more labor. That all reduces our ecological footprint.
2: Those also sound like really good things because then you're reducing the student-to-teacher ratio and you're having less petrochemicals on your food.
3: Exactly. And all of those things improve Our standard of living is very, very easy once once this all fits into place mentally to see how you can reduce your ecological footprint. There are so many ways that you can reduce it quite simply by adding more labor-intensive activities elsewhere in the economy or by reducing the work week. But what you can't do is add efficiencies. For example, if someone thinks that you can reduce your ecological footprint by just simply riding a bike, it's meaningless because... What are they doing with that extra money? A lot of the cyclists, I know, they go to Europe with that extra money. Right. They go to Cuba. Once you've done that, it doesn't matter whether you ride a bike or not. A good example is urban architecture. Like in the city of Vancouver, there's this huge initiative that uh, Vision Vancouver is putting forward about how we can reduce our ecological footprint by urban densification, which is increased condos. It is so silly. You see, that what they're saying is that if everybody lives in a small little condo, it's more efficient. But that's the problem. You see, the most efficient city in the world, the most eco-dense city in the world, well, in North America, is New York City. New York City, the citizens, have the highest per capita ecological footprint in North America and potentially the world because they're also the biggest consumers. Efficiencies, unless you deal with them, increase our ecological footprint. Let me give you one more example right. if I've got time. If, Fuel, one of the things that a lot of people say is, oh, we could reduce our ecological footprint if we had more efficient fuel. It's not true. Coal was more efficient than wood. It produces twice as much energy, and you don't have to chop down forests. Petrol, again, was twice as efficient as coal and produces less pollutants in the form of sulfur and mercury. Based on our definition of green technology, each one of those technologies would have been a green technology over its predecessor. But that's exactly the problem. Because they were more efficient, because they were cleaner, they enabled so many more industries and growth, bigger cities, more cars, uh, new industries like aviation. A steam-powered 747 would never have left the ground. You see, it all created growth. Efficiency, if it creates labor efficiency, results in increased growth. So we have to tackle the efficiencies. That's what ecological sustainability is really about is dealing with the efficiencies in the system. If you take those efficiency gains and you translate it into more leisure time, that's a solution. If you translate those efficiency gains into better quality of life, things like uh, more teachers, more caregivers, organic farming, that works. That's how you really reduce your ecological footprint. It's not about more efficient light bulbs. It's not about more efficient cars. It's not about more efficient roads. And it's not about more efficient condos.
2: So why do politicians always get into the game of you know we'll have uh, you know electric cars or solar panels and that will cause us to have a sustainable society? That's the argument I always hear. So is it just that the the economists or these politicians have a poor understanding of technology and that engineers have a poor understanding of economics, or a combination of both?
3: Well, it's it's about profits. Basically, it's greenwash is extremely profitable. Like in Vancouver, a lot of a uh, lot of the uh, pressure to increased urban densification and green condos, all this green condo stuff that's going up. It's, not, uh, it's developers. Oh, we can make money selling green condos. The motor companies, oh, we can make money selling electric cars. One example that you gave, solar panels. Solar panels are good for the environment. And the reason being is they are incredibly inefficient. They're about four times as inefficient as coal power. It's inefficiency. Is why it would reduce its ecological footprint. Coal is more efficient, therefore it would increase our ecological footprint. See, it's all about how you deal with the efficiencies. Because solar panels are inefficient, nobody wants to um, really use them. They just—they're mostly just green gimmicks. Hardly anybody really powers anything with solar panels. There are some people that, that have tried, but it's just so expensive. I did a—I did a show a little while ago, and it was all powered by solar panels, but it was. $30,000 worth of solar panels or a $50 generator. And they were huge. They were difficult. You had to drive them in a car to get them there. It's the inefficiencies. So it's, it's really exciting mentally putting all these pieces together and it creates some very confusing situations, but uh, that's why I like it
2: right so what aspects of Vancouver make it harder or easier to work less because I've been here about a year and I've realized that it's uh, an extremely costly area to live in but also one of the advantages is car ownership can be somewhat optional and people are interested in alternative living arrangements other than the single-family home so what's your impression on that
3: exactly as you said exactly if you wanna work less and you get rid of your car which is what I did, and you ride your bike. That's a great way you can reduce your ecological footprint and increase your living standard. That's exactly what I did. Or you move into uh, into a space at uh, a sharing accommodation. Again, you're reducing your ecological footprint, and you reduce your work week. But if I reduced and moved into a sharing accommodation and didn't reduce my work week and did what a lot of people do and just take those savings and go for a trip to Mexico or buy a new camera or buy a new computer my um, ecological footprint would be about the same, if not worse. So, you see, it's the, it's the end part, which is what you do with those efficiencies that really determine our ecological footprint. Because if we, if we do what we've been doing for the last several hundred years, which is becoming more efficient, more efficient energy, more efficient architecture, more efficient ships, more efficient computers, more efficient everything, our ecological footprint will only increase. It's funny how... Many environmentalists are putting forward the idea that efficiency will reduce our ecological footprint when it's efficiency over the last several hundred years that has dramatically increased our ecological footprint.
5: Vibration Smack dab In the middle of spectrum Green Can be a problem That's because there's so many Different greens Inside of green And each one has a different IQ There's the green That should never have happened The stupid green The green That is green with envy Then there's the so-so green The who-cares-anyway green But somewhere in green Is a green here and there that has something to say A truly intelligent green A green with some integrity That's the kind of green for you And me There's a green to be seen with Vivid Vibrant, living alive. We should spend the better part of our time, yours and mine, with a green like this. Maybe some of it.
2: So, is is it too late for working less to save the global economy from collapsing?
3: Um, no, no. It's, it's, it's got a long history of being able to do exactly that. Well, the work week is not to grow the economy, but with, rather to deal with the unemployment problem. So you could have more people that are employed, can afford a decent standard of living, but their quality of life improves because they can now uh, spend more time with their children, they have jobs, they, can, they now have time to read books, they have time to do things not complicated it's been done so many so many times even in our own history that was one of the solutions that Roosevelt implemented during the Great Depression in 1933 he said okay we've got a huge unemployment problem let's reduce the work week and that's what he did 50 to 40 hours and if the recession continues in that state it's just a matter of time that it will be implemented because there are not that many simple solutions
2: Right. So how is it that you got involved in industrial automation originally?
3: Good money. It was fun. (laughs) I was a programmer, and writing the code that ran all these uh, factories was was just really exciting. It's definitely fun writing this stuff.
2: And, And how did that experience in automation shape your views on economies and labor?
3: Well, from two perspectives, the most interesting is automation. Automation is... the whole idea of automation is to get rid of people and replace them with machines. That's what automation is all about. You see a job, you say, okay, this machine connected to a robot, your job is gone, we save money, we can make a cheaper product. Then the question comes, if we keep on replacing people with machines, who's gonna buy all the consumer products? Which is what's pretty much happened to the world economy at the moment, is that we've, we've really replaced so many people With machines and the jobs that still exist are now in third world countries where people are working for $12 and $10 a day and are unable to afford to buy all the products that are being manufactured by these machines. So we've created on a global scale a workforce that can't afford to buy all the products being produced. So we've really, in a way, recreated the Great Depression, the the potential for a Great Depression. It was very similar back during the. early part of the 20th centuries, the underlying cause was the electrification of industry which made it so efficient, which is Ford's uh, assembly lines. It wasn't the assembly, it was that it was electrified that created all the efficiencies. You could produce more with less labor, but they weren't really paying people enough money to buy all the stuff.
2: Would you consider yourself a Luddite? And uh, if so, what would you tell someone else to uh, open them up to Ludditism?
3: I would definitely call myself a Luddite. I'm a very, very proud Luddite. <laughs> Being a Luddite is not necessary for ecological sustainability. I used to think it was. But through efficiency shifting, you can still have sectors in the economy that can still grow, can still technologically evolve, can still become competitive. If you counterbalance them with more labor-intensive products overall so that you can have a very, very dynamic economy that doesn't overall increase its ecological footprint. It's very, very possible. It's what I call efficiency shifting. My personal preference is, of course, just being a simple Luddite. It's really great, but, uh, and I used to think that was the only solution, but through efficiency shifting, you can still have that dynamic economy.
2: When- question that uh, kind of came to my mind when I was reading through the book. Why should we be aiming to work less when most likely resource and energy scarcity will mean we'll have to work more in the future because there's less energy density in, in future uh, available fuel sources? Uh, that's,
3: uh, that's a fantastic question. You're talking mostly oil, right?
2: Right, mostly oil. Just speaking on how in a barrel of oil equivalent there's about 42 gallons and in that it's about 6.1 gigajoules and a human-male workday is, let's say, 2,000 calories. So uh, in those 6.1 gigajoules, there's maybe about 720-some-thousand human-male workdays equivalent in a barrel of Mm -hmm. oil.
3: If you could safely say that we were going to be out of oil very, very soon, we'd be fine, but we haven't really even reached the point of a halfway mark. If you look at the last hundred years of the amount of damage that we have done to the ecology with what we have, that's a hundred years and the amount of damage we've done. We've probably got enough oil to safely destroy absolutely everything before it's truly scarce. If we don't start adding some inefficiencies or reducing the work week, we have enough oil to destroy everything. The ecological damage is very, very serious. I mean, 40% of the phytoplankton are gardens since the 1950s. We can't have the assumption that, you uh, know, we can't rely on that we'll run out of oil before we'll destroy the ecology. We'll destroy the ecology way, way before. And also, something that else should be considered is there's no such thing as a scarcity of coal. And coal, during the Second World War, Hitler was a good example. He ran out of oil during the Second World War, and that didn't slow him down 50% of Germans' military was all running on synthetic fuels, which is coal. And we've got about 350 years left of the stuff. South Africa is another example of how running out of fuel did not slow the economy down one single bit because during the 70s, there was a threat of embargoes, oil embargoes. Mm-hmm. So what South Africa did was they built the Secunda oil synthetic fuel plants which to this day are still producing petrol from synthetics and making a huge profit doing it. It didn't slow the economy down at all, and it didn't slow the Germans down at all. We'd have to run out of oil, coal, and any other potential alternatives.
2: Right, so you're saying just because we run out of one resource, we would just automatically start using a a perhaps more environmentally harmful energy source.
3: I think we're going to run out of the planet way before we run out of the
2: I saw you at the Vancouver Degrowth Conference and I was uh, hoping you'd speak a little bit about the concept of degrowth and how it plays into efficiency shifting.
3: Uh, that's what it's, it is all about, is that infinite growth on a finite planet is physically impossible. We need to find ways that we can improve people's quality of life at the same time as not having an overall growing industrial economy. One of the ways that you do that is by increasing people's leisure time, reduce the work week so you can still have people employed at the same time as not growing the overall industrial economy. And there are other ways that it can be done, such as efficiency shifting. and uh, It's a look into different ways that we can do exactly that. If infinite growth is not an option, what are the options?
2: What can we do to actually get our uh, politicians and, I guess, titans of industry talking about these ideas or taking them seriously?
3: Oh, it's it's that's what I've been trying to think about for a long time. Mm-hmm. I wish I had some clear answers because politics is very much uh, influenced by profitability and industry. Politicians, that's where their money comes from, especially uh, well, civic, provincially, federally. How do we get them to think about more than that? Because at the moment, all the solutions that are being proposed are, are, are just greenwash. I have no idea. I, I have, wish I did. I'm doing the best I can with books and films.
2: Right. How, how it's, well has the B.C. Workless Party been received here in, in British Columbia?
3: Really, really well. The last uh, civic elections were very, very surprising. We had like 50,000 votes. It was huge. I mean, like our budget for the entire election was $1,000 for a few posters. That was it, and to get 50,000 votes, it was extremely surprising, when you, especially when you look at what our budget was. Nobody's got elected yet, and that wasn't the idea of creating the party. The party was to get the ideas out there. It wasn't to get people elected, but I tell you, if politicians and uh, keep on ignoring this concept which is so simple, eventually the workplace party will unfortunately have somebody elected and that person would have to work. <laughs> So it, again, it wasn't the whole objective of the Workers' Party was was to get an idea out. It wasn't to get people elected. I had no idea how stubborn other political party candidates would be about this. I suppose yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. I thought it'd be easy. But mm-hmm. No.
2: So changing gears just a little bit before we we sign off. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your film Five Ring Circus. I'm familiar with a lot of the points you made and being here for the Olympics and then being here uh, before and after the Olympics. You, you definitely see what the Olympics are all about. And I don't think I had that perspective being in other cities during the Olympics. You always just see this, you know, the shiny ringed logos and you think, oh, wow, all of these uh, athletes are going around and competing to, uh, to represent their countries. So, so talk a little bit about your ideas on the Olympics and uh, the motivation for making Five Ring Circus.
3: There are probably two. The first one is that that amount of construction, five years of construction, the devastation to the ecology is just not acceptable. Remember, one ton of cement is equal to a ton of CO2, and that's five years of pouring down cement and building these huge buildings, chopping down uh, uh, wetlands in, in Whistler up at Eagle Ridge as well. All of this construction, as long as construction involves cement, it is incredibly ecologically destructive. And as long as you're chopping down trees, it's even more ecologically destructive. So that was one of my big concerns because I really am worried about what we're doing to the ecology. The other one is just the insanity of the costs and the lies that come out. While I was making the film, we looked at the uh, bid book. The bid book was the document that listed the expenses for the games the estimates. And there was this one figure, uh, and we saw it was $170 million for security. And we knew immediately it was a lie. Athens, Torino, they were all in the billion dollar range. So for the bid book to say $170 million was a blatant lie. We immediately set on sending out a Freedom of Information uh, request on the BPD, the Army, the CSIS. Basically, we wanted to know what their security budgets were for the games. And we were, because we knew it was impossible to do it for $170 million. We knew it was a lie, but we right. needed the proof. And we got the proof. The RCMP sent us back their estimate. This was still really, really early. This was back in, I think, 2007. Mm-hmm. And it showed that their estimate was $504 million. So that's mm-hmm. substantially higher than the 170, And that was only one division, the RCMP. So we thought, wow, we've got we got smoking gun over here. We've got proof that they're lying because at the same time they were, they were uh, Gordon Campbell's government was, Ooh, it's only going to cost us 170 million dollars. But we had the proof. The estimate from the RSMP was uh, was half a billion dollars. So we contacted all the media and we sent out and we sent out the documents. And only one news agency reported on it,
6: and a tiny
3: little blurb in 24 hours. That was it. That for me was. An indication of the level of the corruption in this whole system, of how information was being so distorted.
2: I guess you could say, if something as ultimately meaningless as the Olympics could face such censorship, uh, it, it really makes you wonder about even more pressing and uh, important topics.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, what was, uh, I mean, just the debt that the games have left over. Sixty percent of the uh, Olympic villages is empty. That's a billion dollar project. That's hundreds of million dollars that taxpayers are going to be paying for. I uh, remember uh, Montreal only finished paying off their Olympic debt two years ago and that was that was probably in less trying times. What we're going to be experiencing paying off this debt is, I mean, that was $8 billion. That's a lot of money. You can do some real good with $8 billion. To throw a party for $8 billion is wrong, especially when there's so many people in the city that, that you could have done so much good with it, especially at this time.
2: I guess that's a, a good point to close out the interview on. Um, I'm wondering if there's any other projects that you're working on, uh, books or film.
3: Uh, no, I'm just being really, really lazy these days. I've got a little two-and-a-half-year-old kid who I spend a lot of, a lot of time playing with. He makes <laughs> me so happy.
2: <laughs> well, that's not being lazy. That's just enjoying being a dad.
3: That's really great. It's just so so much fun. I had no idea that it would be this fantastic.
2: Before we we close everything out, is there any last things you'd like to say about efficiency uh, shifting as an alternative to a growth-based economy?
3: Super simple. It it makes ecologically sustainability really possible. It's simple to implement. It's a real solution. If we continue with this nonsense of greenwash, it doesn't do anybody any good.
2: Okay. Well, thanks, Conrad. It's been really a pleasure talking with you. I'll look forward to hearing more from you once you uh, put out your next book or I see you speak here in Vancouver on any number of assorted topics.
3: Well, thank you so much. It was great.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, have a fantastic afternoon.
4: Hard time
2: hard times. Oh yeah, yeah, Who knows? Better than I? A big drop on Wall Street today. The
4: worldwide credit crunch.
0: Big losses. A virtual bloodbath. And stock markets have plunged. Guess
4: what So, what's causing the world's current financial crisis? Oh, to answer this question. Let me tell you the story of Sir James Hargreaves, an English gentleman who lived not all that long ago. You see, Mr. Hargreaves, he was quite the industrious hard worker. And he came up with an idea. Instead of spinning yarn just one spindle at a time, what about making a machine that could spin eight yarn spindles at once? His invention was called the spinning jenny, revolutionized fabric production you could now produce four times as much yarn with half the number of people half the number of workers were now required to meet market demand sounds good well not exactly you see the consequence was that the price of yarn dropped many lost their jobs It was not too long before a rowdy crowd of disgruntled former yarn spindles, rioted, came to Mr. Hargreaves' house and smashed his machines. They sent him fleeing for his life to London. Well, that's not exactly how the story ends. You see, what eventually happened over time was that market for fabric grew. People started to consume more radical, extravagant and consumerist ideas such as changing your underwear weekly started. Eventually, the economy grew to match the gains that technological efficiency had created. You see, that's what technology does. It makes us more efficient at producing things. With less labor, we can produce so much more. But if we don't consume more, we land up with a surplus in labor and people lose their jobs. Now, the reason why this is so interesting is we see a virtual identical repeat. These are the same things that caused the Great Depression of the 1930s. The late 19th century and early 20th century, you have a huge number of new technological inventions that make us more efficient than ever before. You have the combustion engine, you have production lines, you have transatlantic flight, you have radio... And all of these new inventions make us more efficient than we have ever been before. Overall, between 1923 and 1929, the efficiency and output per laborer increased 32%. However, take-home pay only increased 8%. This means that people could only consume and purchase eight percent more stuff. The consequence was that fewer workers were needed to be able to produce all the goods and services that were being consumed. The result? People lost their jobs. And this was the fundamental cause of the Great Depression of the 1930s. So what was it that eventually got the North American economy out of the Depression?
5: America is busy now factories hum, and millions of men, formerly idle, now work night and day on tanks, airplanes, defense orders. But what about tomorrow? Tomorrow, when the defense emergency is over, can we keep these men employed making goods people need for living? New labor-saving machines will be invented. Must they again throw men out of work Or can we use the new machines to make more goods, more jobs?
4: So what was it that eventually got us out of the Great Depression? Well, the same thing that got us out of England's little textile recession. People started to consume more. Initially, it was in the form of a wartime economy more bombs, more boats, more ships, more tanks. But after the war, we have the birth of a new consumerist culture. Roosevelt implements new legislation that protects workers from the exploitation of corporations, ensures a minimum wage, ensures that people have good working standards.
5: But will attempt to give to the industrial workers of the country a more
1: fair wage return to prevent cutthroat competition.
4: Corporations, also through the means of advertising, start encouraging increased amounts of consumerism. Basically what we happen is as much as technology makes us more efficient, we, the new consumerist culture, consume just as much.
6: So hardly realizing it, they come into their purchasing stage and are off on a wild non-stop ride.
4: Today, we are about four times as productive as the average worker in the 1950s. Today, factories in the West are virtually almost entirely automated, except for a few supervisors and people packing things. They are run almost entirely by machines. The more technology makes us efficient, the less employees we need to produce the same amount of goods and services. The problem we now have is twofold. The first problem is a virtual identical repeat of what happened during the Great Depression. Even though we can produce so much more, people can no longer afford as much as they're producing. Even though production has gone up, real wages have stagnated, and in some cases, substantially declined. Each time we take a factory and we move it to say the Honduras or somewhere where the labor forces pay say example Honduras uh, twelve dollars a day we are again creating on a global scale a workforce that can't afford to buy the goods that they're manufacturing. This is important because that's what caused the Great Depression. The second part of the problem is something new that we have never had to deal with before. You see We've been increasing consumption to match our increase in production. But what we've been consuming is the planet itself. Almost 80% of all the all-growth forests are gone. Um, 90% of the world's large fish are no longer there. According to the last UN survey, 60% of the world's ecosystems are in substantial decline. Basically, we're consuming ourselves out of a planet to match the increases in technological efficiency. So here's the challenge that faces us as a civilization. What got us out of previous depressions and recessions was we found new ways to consume more goods and services. But how do we get out the current financial situation and not increase consumption? Well, one option and one strategy that was tried back during the Great Depression was Roosevelt reduced the work week
1: to prevent unduly long hours for labor.
4: Initially, it was a 10-hour work day, and he reduced it to eight hours a day. The idea is to share the work. If there's less work to go around, distribute it so that more people can become employed. And we see the same thing happen in the 1960s.
5: I'm not satisfied when the United States had last year the lowest rate of economic growth of any major industrialized society in the world
4: the North American economy again is slowing down. Kennedy starts talking about reducing the work week. This country is changing. We had a 58-hour week, a 48-hour week, a 40-hour week. As machines take more and more of the jobs of men, we're going to find the work week reduced.
2: And that wraps up my interview with Conrad Schmidt of the BC Work Less Party. Uh, what do you think, Seth?
0: It's a very interesting way of thinking. I've never really heard it before in any kind of mainstream or scholastic media that I've consumed. Yeah. What did you think of the interview, Dustin? You interviewed this man.
2: When I first saw Conrad and heard him speak at the Vancouver Degrowth Conference back in February, it was love at first sight. I thought, man, here's a guy that has a unique solution to the economy the environment, and energy, and that solution also makes me happy. So, I'm all for it.
0: So, Justin, can you tell me about episode number five of The Extra Environmentalist?
2: Definitely. I I feel like we've been thinking ahead in in producing this stuff, which is exciting. So, basically, I have uh, a talk given here at UBC by David Corden. He's author of When Corporations Rule the World, Agenda for a New Economy, and The Great Turning. Uh, he's came to uh, UBC to give a talk about his book, uh, Agenda for a New Economy, and I thought it was really interesting. So um, we're going to play that next week.
0: All you extra environmentalist fans who are out there, I want to hear you dialing those numbers and leaving us a great message.
2: And we've also got a Twitter account at twitter.com slash xenvironmental, and that's exciting. We've been getting some tweets. People have been tweeting us. They've been retweeting us. So I yeah I saw
0: we had two retweets last week didn't we?
2: Yeah, and that's good because I haven't really promoted it at all, but there's already people following it, so that's exciting. where do they
0: get it from? Are they getting it from your tweets?
2: I think it's in their dreams. They have a dream, and then they're like, <laughs> I must follow this
0: it's like inception we plant this stuff into their minds while they're asleep
2: i don't think we should give away what we actually are doing with this podcast seth well. and don't forget you can check us out at extra uh but most likely you already know about that so really just take that url and email it to your friends with all that being said i guess we'll get to work on episode number five and quite frankly I don't think it's time for us to commit to a regular production schedule. What do you think, Seth? Hell no. Exactly. So I think we'll just keep putting out podcasts as we have content. But seeing that we have content pretty much all the time, you can expect something from us, I'd say, probably every 10, 14 days.
0: That sounds fair.
1: Hi, I just uh, got to your episode number three. I was listening to KMO and he talked about Doug Lane and him on your episode number three, so I was listening to that. Doug Lane is naive, okay? Doug Lane is naive, that's all there is to it. I've listened to him a lot and he is naive. Uh, Thirdly, your motto, I am human being, therefore nothing human is alien to me, I believe is way, way inaccurate. Um, I'm quite certain that uh, human evil... Is incomprehensible and alien to most people. The notion of, of the psychopath, the serial killer, that an ordinary human being can so easily be turned into a torturer. Look up uh, Stanley Milgram's experiment. You know that uh, that women can murder their children, that um, husbands and wives can beat torture each other. To an ordinary, sane, healthy, normal person, that is alien, incomprehensible. That human beings can be so derving, disgusting, depraved, is alien.